Well, I just want to echo what Gary said to start. It uh, is a blessing that we can be together, and even as I was thinking as he read, and we've talked about already, the yearning that we all have to be together again. Uh, beloved, we're all facing that. We're all feeling that. Uh, that was well said this morning, and know that even this crew, we have the, the barest of skeleton crew here, Jeremy, Nathan, and Gary, and myself. That's it, as we uh, not only look to uh, respect authority and, and do the right things, but also in love for others. Uh, I'll tell you, as I look around at uh, just a really bare church with just these guys uh, in me right now, there's a yearning for us to be together. So we feel that with you. This, of course, as Gary said, it's not optimal, but it's doable, and it's good to still be able to gather in this virtual form Sunday morning. So with thankfulness in our hearts that uh, 100 years ago we wouldn't be able to do this, uh, thankfulness that we can now, today, uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer uh, with that heart of thanks. Bow your heads with me as we pray. O God, most high, creator of the ends of the earth, governor of the universe, a judge of all men, head of the church, savior of sinners. Your greatness is unsearchable. Your goodness is infinite. Your compassions unfailing, your providence boundless, your mercies ever new. We thank you for the gospel of grace, the unspeakable gift. We thank you for the gospel of mercy, the undeserved pardon. We rejoice in Christ, your Son, our only refuge, foundation, hope, and confidence. We depend upon his death, rest in his righteousness, desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds his love rule our affections. No cross, his cross, inflame our zeal. And Lord, we continue to pray for our fellow man, that they would know him. In times like these, that they would know him. Our relatives, our friends, our neighbors, oh God, have mercy on them. And today, we pray especially for our leaders our government, making very tough decisions in very difficult times. We lift them to you, O Lord. Guide them, uphold them, wisen them. Instead of second-guessing, as we are prone to do, may we support. Instead of laughing, as we're prone to do, let us listen. May we honor and respect them all the more in such times of crisis because the weight of their decisions is immense. God, have mercy on them and all of us in the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, Westmount, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn for the final time in this series, hard to say, but the book of Galatians, Galatians 6. Right at the end, we close this wonderful book today. Galatians 6, we'll just pick up where we left off last time in verse 11. Verse 11, so 
As we do each morning, let me read this text to set our hearts and minds on it, and then we will look at what God has to say to us. Galatians 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Those are the closing words of this letter, this epistle to the Galatians. And in many respects, it is not your standard sign-off from the Apostle Paul. I think that's clear even as we just look at that briefly. This is not a standard sign-off. His other letters, if you just think of them for a moment, often close with a long list of greetings. I think about the Colossians letter, how it closes with a long list of greetings to many, many friends. Some others close with a preview of his upcoming travel plans. We think about the book of Romans where he details his plans to go there, to go to Rome, possibly to Spain and so on. And as you think of those other letters, many include prayers and doxologies, right? Those are your standard fare closings of Paul's letters. However, here in Galatians, we've seen that this letter in and of itself is anything but standard. From the opening verses, if you recall them, Paul has dispensed with everything else other than the urgent reason why he has picked up the reed pen. Everything else has been dispensed with. Chapter after chapter, verse after verse, he has made a direct line to what? To the gospel. To the gospel. The gospel that is under attack here in the churches of Galatia. Which is no surprise, this is not just a first century thing, whether then or now, the gospel is always under fire, it's always under attack. So we would say, no, the issue is not the fact that it is under attack, but the reason Paul is writing is because of the response to that attack by God's people, by the Galatians. The response, that newly planted, freshly commended group of believers who recall, they got it. They understood it. They got it. But now, as Paul said in the opening verses of this letter, they were doing what of that gospel? Quickly deserting quickly deserting that same gospel that had established them, and they were turning to a different gospel, he says, a different gospel. And so Paul has taken great pains in this letter to remind churches of something that they should know already, that they knew, they stated, and they were established with already, and it's this, that there is no other gospel. There is no other gospel. But beloved, as we've said in this series, and we remind ourselves at close today, 
There is no other gospel, but there are many allurements, are there not? Many, many allurements, many different gospels, many presented gospels, wealth, works, and all in between. And not that there actually is another one, to use the words of Paul, remember chapter 1, verse 7, he said it this way, not that there actually is another one, another gospel, but there are many who cause trouble and seek to distort the true gospel of Christ. In other words, there is only one. We can present, people can present other gospels, but they're false gospels. There is only one, gospel of Christ. And that gospel of Christ, you've seen in this letter, not just presented, not just presented, but the implications of that gospel have been presented. That's been the focus of this letter. Particularly as we wind down these chapters, we've seen gospel implications Flesh and spirit and loving one another. Those are all the natural implications of the one true gospel. So indeed, we would say we recognize that at the end, that it's been presented. But we may still ask, how do we know when we think about all the different gospels out there? And we think about our final takeaways. How do we know if what we're hearing, reading, seeing, taking in, so many of us taking in info these days, especially online, how do we know what we're taking in is in step with the true gospel? How do we know? Well, the book of Galatians has shown us, loved ones has shown us. And now here as we close... Paul will give a grand reminder for us, along with the Galatians, of that true gospel. And here it is, the grand implications of the true gospel in our lives. Now we think about our lives, we use a word we use often in the church, and that would be ministry. The ministry of the child of God. And if it is true that there is only one true gospel, then it is also true, loved ones, that there is only one true, authentic gospel ministry. And Paul will bring it all together here as we close. One final, this is how you know. That's what we will get here to end this letter. In fact, uh, quite specifically, we'll see three facets, three facets of genuine gospel ministry in these closing verses. I pray for all of us, will cement the important takeaways for us so that the book of Galatians is not just another study, maybe a turning point study for us in ministry from this letter. So let's turn our attention now to the first facet. It is this, gospel ministry has the right motives. Gospel ministry has the right motives. We're going to see this in the opening verses here, verse 11. Look at it with me. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Very interestingly, he turns us now to the sign-off, the very physical sign-off. It was the ancient Near Eastern custom uh, for teachers and those writing a letter to have a letter preparer. And we know that, say, is a secretary, someone who would uh, take down the dictation, if you will, someone who was capturing the letter. Well, very, very much a common practice in the ancient Near East. In fact, you think about Paul's letters, they were all written this way. I think about the book of Romans, which we've mentioned already. Tertius would be the secretary, or another word you might have heard called this, the amanuensis. That really is the person taking down what Paul is saying. Tertius is that in Romans. What about Ephesians and Colossians? Very likely Tychicus. 
that would have done it for those books. Some speculate that Silas would have been a scribe as well, maybe for another book. The point being, someone else writing down the bulk of the letter, very much like a secretary would capture information. But Paul here, as he does in his letters, reminds that these are still words from him. Each of Paul's letters have one capturing Paul's words and writing down what Paul is saying. Now, you can likely imagine, just imagine with me, the fraudulent possibilities of such a thing. I mean, we see that today. And that is why Paul includes this stamp, if you will, this authentication, almost like the king's ring, right? That kind of seal on every letter to say, this is me. This is me. This is not a fraud. He he puts it very pointedly. Think with me of the letter, the second letter to the Thessalonians. Ending that letter, chapter 3, verse 17, Paul writes this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And then he says this, listen, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. In other words, this is his signature to authenticate the letter. And it's no different here in the Galatian letter. And even, church, I'd submit to you all the more here in this Galatian letter and a letter like this, a letter that opened with this question of authority. Turn to the opening pages by way of just a reminder. Turn to the very first verse of this letter for a reminder on why authority is so important and why Paul is revisiting it here at the end of the letter. Look at how he opens the letter. Remember this, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Uh, Amazing. Paul, an apostle, he makes very clear, not from men. This is not a man thing. This is from who? Jesus Christ and God the Father. Uh, Incredible, uh, bold uh, opening statement of authority here. And we think about Paul being an apostle from God, and we think also, again, not just of the closing being the same in many of his letters, the opening. Is this not the way Paul opens many of his letters? Cementing the fact that he's an apostle from God. In other words, this is who is writing to you. And this authority now, as we go back to the end of the letter, is affirmed here. And again, in verse 11, he says what? Look at the large letters the large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, it's been speculated in many ways what these large letters could mean. Maybe Paul just wrote large. He was one that had a a high script. Uh, Maybe he wrote large to emphasize, especially in a bold letter like this. These are like what you would have on your uh, Microsoft Word, the bold or the underline. Maybe it's like that. Maybe it's the eye condition that Paul had. Remember that? We talked about that uh, earlier in this letter. The eye condition that was a trial to these Galatians for whatever it was, the bodily ailment, uh, very much in view. The fact, he talks about the fact that they would have gouged out their eyes and give it to him. So clearly Paul had an eye issue. Whatever the case, let's be clear, we don't know. And Paul makes clear through these large letters, and here is the point, that these large letters authenticate the fact that it's Paul writing this letter. And, and by saying that, we need to remind ourselves this. 
When it is by the hand of an apostle, a true apostle like Paul, that means that ultimately the words are from the mouth of God. If it's by the hand of an apostle, the words are from the mouth of God. That's the way the New Testament has been given to us. God is the source, ultimately, of this letter. God is the one giving this message. And that's the point here in verse 11. And this word, this letter, is what must motivate good gospel ministry. There is no other motivation. It must be God's words that motivate good gospel ministry, always. And we say that because there are bad motivations, and not just one or two, but there are many bad motivations to gospel ministry, which we're going to see now. And Paul uses the backdrop here in Galatia to remind us of bad motivations. Look with me in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Those who would force you to be circumcised. That's who Paul is now talking about. Those who would force you to be circumcised. Westmount, I pray at this point, you know exactly who that is in view. That would be, of course, the Judaizers. The Judaizers, those bringing the different gospel, those bringing the Christ plus works gospel, the so-called Jewish Christian missionaries from Jerusalem demanding circumcision. Remember, that's what they demanded, circumcision. Remember that gospel call from Acts 15.1? This was their rallying cry, these Judaizers. Right? This is what uh, caused the need for the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Here it is, Acts 15.1. This is what the Judaizers were bringing to Galatia. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. That was the gospel, and we looked at this extensively in our study. That was the gospel of man from the Judaizers. Law work was needed to be justified, to be made right before God. We may, at this point in the letter, have forgotten about them, those Judaizers, as this letter winds down and it gets into some application. We may have forgotten it, but Paul makes sure we don't forget about it before he signs off. And here in these two verses, right here where we're at, he presents four of their distorted motivations, almost by way of a sidestep. He's just going to give us, in rapid-fire succession, four motivations that they have, right, that are not good motivations of the gospel, not true. Motivations by way of contrast. So we will look at what motivations shouldn't be and can't be for good gospel ministry that inform what they should be for true ministry. Motivations of false teachers then, and let's say this before we dig into these, that are no different to the motivations that we see around us today the motivations of false teachers today. I mean, you can map this one-to-one. And we've touched on this before, but Paul summarizes them in conclusion here. And this is a helpful summary as we close this book today. Let's look at the first one. It says, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. Here's one motivation. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. Verse 12. It was all about externals for the Judaizers. Do you remember that? All about the outside. 
Remember, they were about external law-keeping, visible law-showing. It was all about what the people were seeing. And here Paul says, simply, it's all a show. It's all a show. Just to make, look at it, a good show in the flesh. We've learned all about the flesh, have we not, in Galatians? All about the flesh. The flesh, that foil to the spirit, if you will. The flesh standing in direct opposition to the spirit, as we've seen in chapter 5. Nothing good can come from the flesh, and hence, no good motivation can ever come from the flesh. Here Paul says that it is from the flesh, of the flesh, motivated by the flesh, this motivation. This is how the Judaizers operate, in the flesh. It was all about the outside to the Judaizers. It was all about looking the part, doing the law. And beloved, as we wrap this book, let's not forget that truth again, because it is the same trap and temptation today. Different gospels, hear me, different gospels today always make a good showing in the flesh every time. The false gospels then are exactly like they do today. They are flashy, they are catchy, and they're meant to draw you in. That's the point. How, how does that look? The wealth gospel panders to the flesh's greed and selfishness. Have more, want more, do more, acquire more, get more. It's the false gospel of, of wealth and earning. The works gospel panders to the flesh's inflated view of self and what we can offer. Is that not true? All works gospels pander to that human condition to say, I can do something more, and I can do something that earns favor with God. Every works gospel panders to that dimension of the flesh. And what about the weak gospel? This may be the most prevalent today. The weak gospel, almost the imperceptible gospel, it panders to what the flesh is laziness and impurity. It's an easy gospel. Because it's easy to hitch your wagon to that gospel. Right? No cost. Nothing. A weak gospel. Yet, piggyback to the flesh. All those different gospels, and by the way, many more, those false gospels, all of them, every single one, and today as well, can be mapped directly to the flesh and the motivations of our flesh. False teachers today, no different to those yesterday, all want to make, look at it again, verse 12, to make a good showing in the flesh. That's one corrupt motivation. Paul moves on to another in verse 12 at the end. He says they also want to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. They want to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. Paul states here that behind the Judaizers' insistence on circumcision is not just a motivation that shows the flesh, but it's a motivation, catch it, that spares the flesh. Do you see that? They, they don't want to be hurt. They don't want to be harmed. Simply false teachers don't want to suffer at all. They want to avoid any concept of persecution and suffering. Insisting on circumcision would have kept them safe and appeased. And you say, how? Well, by the Jews. By the Jews. To, to the Jews, circumcision, that ultimate badge of law-keeping, was sacred. In fact, to the Jews, we get the sense here, they would have been fine with speaking of this Christ. Just make sure you get circumcised, right? But that may appease, but that's not the gospel at all. The gospel is not about making sure you do something. 
No, many Jews, of course, would have held to that. And these Judaizers were Jews. Jewish Christian missionaries, remember, that would have had at least lip service for Christ. But the strict ones were going after the Christians who were saying you don't need circumcision. The strict ones were going after the ones that said all you need is Jesus. In fact, one of the strictest ones was who? The one God used to put this letter together. Do you remember? You know him as Saul of Tarsus. Do you remember him? He went from door to door, Acts 8, Acts 9, and what did he do? He was dragging the Christians into persecution. That same one, God converted, and now is someone very, very different. But he, in that behavior that we know of the old Apostle Paul, then Saul, reminds us of that Judaizer mentality, that strict Judaizer mentality we're seeing here, right? And when we think about the Judaizing missionaries now, They were fine inflicting persecution on others, but they didn't want to have persecution come to them. That's exactly what we're seeing here. These Judaizers then, looking to be on both sides, appeasing both sides, a lip service to Christ and law work for the Jews. That was their M.O. Yet as much as they claimed Christ, they were certainly not following him, not authentically, And why? Remember, Jesus told his followers plainly what? That they would avoid persecution? No. Jesus was the most point blank in saying, you will face it. It will come. It will come. You will suffer. That was not only part of the reality of following Jesus. That was not just a part of this could happen to you if you follow Jesus. No, that was actually, as Jesus told us, the reality of following him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means you will suffer. That's what Jesus said. And this was not just the bearing one's own cross, right? Or even hating one's own life. I mean, those are dimensions of being a Christ follower. But it was not just that. Jesus taught that during his ministry, right? I think of Luke 14, where he taught that extensively. Yes, we take up our cross. Yes, we hate our own life. That is true. But this fact of persecution was the fact, the overarching uh, attitude and perspective and reality of the Christian life. And Jesus taught this specifically at the end of his ministry. And what did he say? Turn to John 15. Jesus can't be more clear than this. John 15, the end of his ministry, last meal with his apostles, he said this, the Christian reality that others would hate the Christian. John 15, let's pick it up in verse 18. These final instructions that Jesus gives to his apostles, to his people. Pick it up in verse 18. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. I mean, that's strong language, but that's one thing, right? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. He gives them this reminder and picture. A servant is not greater than his master. In other words, if it happened to the master, Jesus says, it will happen to you. And that's just simple logic. Jesus employs this all the time. And then this. If they persecuted me, then, we can say, 
they will also persecute you. In other words, if they persecuted the master, they will persecute the servant. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Right from the mouth of Jesus, he defines the reality of being a Christ follower, and that is what? Persecution. In Galatia, those proclaiming a different gospel, however, wanted to avoid persecution. Right away, you see the discontinuity between the words of Jesus and the actions of false teachers and these Judaizers. And Westmount, as we keep saying, it's still the case today, is it not? Where there is wrong teaching, where there is wrong teaching, there is avoidance of anything, any word that would bring mistreatment. Is that not true? Where there is false teaching, you will always find an avoidance of anything that could bring harm and mistreatment. That is why, let me give you a very practical test, that is why in false teaching, you will never get definitive resolved statements. Beloved, hear me. You know it's false teaching when you get ambiguity, when you get uncertainty, when you get expressions like this. Well, it could be this for this group, but it could be that for that group. A few years ago, I was watching a very famous, famous pastor in the United States, one of the largest churches in the United States. He was being interviewed on national television, and he was being asked very pointed questions Simple questions about sin, about hell, and so on. About salvation in Jesus Christ. And I cannot tell you how many times he said this. I don't know. I don't know. Well, if you sin, does that have consequences? I don't know. Does everybody need Jesus Christ? Do we need to follow Jesus Christ to go to heaven? I don't know. I don't know. False teacher false teacher. Beloved, beware of the I don't knows. Beware of the ambiguity. That is a sure mark, the false teacher. False teachers, listen, don't want to ruffle any feathers and they want to avoid all harm. Here's another way you can recognize them. They sit atop a perch right on the middle of the fence and they just sow platitudes on each side to make everyone happy. That's a false teacher. Yet I ask you this, Westbound, I ask you this. Think about what is in your Bible, is that what Jesus did? Did Jesus sit on a fence pandering to both sides? Let me ask you this. Is that what Paul did? Did Paul sit on the fence avoiding persecution, making sure everyone was happy? No, of course not. Of course not. Followers of Christ, like Paul, preached the true gospel, and not only preached the true gospel, what? They suffered for it. They suffered for it. And Christian, that means, as Jesus said, all his true followers, true followers, will too, will too. And that's a good test for us, Westmount. It's a good test. A few questions that help us diagnose our own heart. Are you seeking to avoid persecution? Are you seeking to avoid persecution? Are you claiming Christ but compromising the message to avoid being mocked? Are you claiming Christ, but doing something different just because it's easier, just because it's the path of least resistance? Is that your Christianity? No, beloved, it shouldn't be. That's the Judaizers' version of the gospel. It's not us. That was their motivation, and it shouldn't be ours. But let's look at the other one in verse 13 
Another motivation of the false teacher, those pushing circumcision themselves don't keep the law. There's a hypocrisy going on here as a motivation in false teaching. They push circumcision, but they themselves don't keep the law. Sure, they kept circumcision. They kept a tenant of the law. They kept the sheriff's badge of the law. No problem with that. The outward sign, they had no issue with that. They were very good at that. That is the outward stuff. I think about the Pharisees. They had this corner. Do you remember the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18? What did the Pharisee stand up as the tax collector was on his knees? What did the Pharisee say? Thank you, God, that I'm all these wonderful external things. That's what the Pharisee said. And this is what false teacher can be prone to as well. All the things you can see, I want you to see the fact that I'm very good at those things. But when it came to keeping all the law, outside and in, Paul says here that they didn't. They didn't. Not only could they not possibly keep the whole law, which is a whole other message, and we talked about that, right, in chapters prior. It's impossible to keep the whole law. There's no way anyone could ever do that. But what is the one major dimension of the law that we're all called to keep as God's followers that they completely missed? They got the outside, but they missed the inside. Inside. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Remember this? The whole law. And look at the wording. The whole law, remember, was fulfilled in One word. What was it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul quoting from the law. Leviticus 19, he goes to the heart of the law and says, they're not, this is the whole law. It's not keeping circumcision. False teachers, Paul says, are about keeping circumcision. But they kept little else. And church, it's no different with false teachers today. False teachers, really good at doing what gives a good showing, really good at not making waves, but really, really poor at really, really following Jesus. Really bad at that. Doing all that he says, not just the one thing that looks good in front of a camera or on social media. We're talking about doing the whole law. They're very poor at that. By the way, beloved, another helpful little tool, this is why bad teaching always skips the hard stuff. This is why bad teaching always skips those verses, those passages you have questions about. You will never hear a false teacher dealing with them. Why? Because they only keep the things that pander to their own flesh. That's it. They don't keep all of God's word. They have their cherries, and they will present them to you 37 different ways. But the whole counsel of Scripture, they have none of that. And in that sense, they called you to something, but it's not all of it. And it's hypocritical. Even more, as we just learned, they don't want to be persecuted for teaching all of it. Especially, they don't want to live it. One more motivation in these verses, I pray is helpful. End of verse 13, Paul says, they want to boast in your flesh. They want to boast in your flesh. The Judaizers presumably wanted to report back to Jerusalem with data. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem with statistics, showy statistics, Look at how successful we are. Pull out the graph of all the circumcisions they did in Galatia. That's what they want. They want to boast about their work, right? And how they made people do the law. We got those Gentile Christians circumcised. That's what we did. That would be a boast, would it not? That's a boast. And again, not unlike the boasts of false teachers today. Boasting of their followers, boasting of their converts, boasting in the flesh. 
This is a stuff that you see broadcast all over the place. How many people are following so-and-so? How many people like him? And so on. A boast. It's always gospel ministry with all the wrong motives. All the wrong motives. The bad example for us. The bad example. This is not what motivates good gospel ministry. No, good and right gospel ministry is not motivated by the flesh at all. That's been Paul's point in the letter. And here in these two verses, he pauses for a moment to demonstrate that is not true of any church at any time and uses the Judaizers and their example. Now we're going to see him turn to what true gospel ministry should be driven by. So we've talked about the motives of the ministry Let's talk about now the means of the ministry. What is the means of it? Gospel ministry has the right means. Gospel ministry has the right means. Let's look at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul has a boast, as he often does in the New Testament, but it's not in the flesh. It's not in himself. It's not in anything else other than what do we see right here? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This echoes, go to chapter 2 of Galatians by way of review. Galatians 2 verse 20. This is the touchstone boast of Paul in all of his ministry. Always casting himself aside, right? Always casting aside whatever work people would say he's done and making his boast in one alone. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I mean, you talk about a comprehensive statement. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a comprehensive statement that gives glory to Christ Incredible from the Apostle Paul. In other words, there is no other boast in the life that's been truly redeemed. There can be no other boast. The only boast possible for such a purchased soul is the means that bought it, is the means that redeemed it. That's the only, only boast possible. It's like the drowning man that gets pulled up out of the shore. He was drowning, but the man pulled him up. It would be folly for him to get up on that shore and say, look what I did. If I didn't flap my arms this way, he wouldn't have saw me. And you know what? If I didn't help him save me, no, that's ridiculous. The drowning man has no, who is saved has no other boast other than in what? The rescuer. Because if the rescuer didn't come along, he would drown. And Paul recognizes it's the same truth spiritually. There is no other boast for the redeemed, purchased soul. That's precisely Paul's point. And what is the boast? Look at it. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, that is your only boast. Your only boast. On that cross, Christ took your sin. Not your good works. He took your sin, Christian. And he bore that sin. He bore the curse resulting from that. He bore it for you. To make the price and make the way for you. Chapter 3, we looked at that curse. On that cross, Christ crucified your flesh, and thus the power of your flesh. We looked at that in chapter 5. The flesh and the world that spurns on and fans the flames of the flesh, 
They were crucified on that cross. Their hold, their penalty, vanquished Christian. That is why Paul says that the world has been, look at it, crucified to me and I to the world. He's simply saying what he stated in Galatians 2.20, that through Christ, through his union with Christ, here it is, Paul is dead to the world and the world is dead to Paul. And I mean his whole ministry demonstrates that. Paul lived for Christ. In that sense, he was crucified to the world. It was dead to him. And Christian, that means it's true of you. It's true of you. The world is dead to you. It's power gone. The flesh defeated. We have been crucified with Christ. That's that wonderful, one of the many, many benefits of union with Christ. Not only do we have that union, we have all the benefits thereof. I mean, tremendous truth. That's a life now lived where the flesh and the world once had dominion, once kept us in bondage, but at the cross, at the cross, it was crucified, killed, no power in our life. Again, we looked at this extensively in chapter 5. We now, we're not in bondage, in bondage to our own will, to our own way, to the law, to sin and all of that. No, we now are freed from it and we can, because of Christ, walk, keep in step with the Spirit. We now have choice. And that means now in our life is possible not because of what we do. And this is Paul's point now as he closes. Not because of what we do. That gospel means is possible not because of circumcision or anything else. No, no work. Paul says in verse 15, look with me, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In Christ, it is not what you were, what you've done, or anything else. This is the point. In Christ, all that counts, as Paul says here, is that you are a new creation. That same truth is trumpeted throughout the New Testament. I think about the second letter to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says this, If anyone is in Christ, that's that union with Christ, if you are in Christ, born again in Christ with him, he is, that one, is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. I mean, in one verse, so simply we see there, there is a newness, there is a new reality. Someone who claims Christ is a new creation and you will see that. This is the new creation that Christ himself spoke of to Nicodemus. Do you remember that nighttime encounter in John 3? Nicodemus had questions. Questions about Jesus, his work, and the implications of his work. And remember, Jesus walked him through this newness of life, this regeneration, about being born again. And you see how it all comes together here. And, and that illustration Jesus uses of being born again, so apt, right, demonstrates to us there is nothing Nicodemus, Galatian, Westmount, that we do. It's all the work of God. Jesus so famously taught in that passage, regeneration, new creation, newness of life is not a result of us. We cannot boast in such things. It's not because of circumcision, it's not because of uncircumcision, it's because of nothing else other than new creation in Christ. Similarly, our new creation status, we would say, as we look at all of these different examples in Galatia, Nicodemus, and otherwise, it's not because we signed up for it. It's not because of any of these things that the Judaizers have been boasting about, uh, that a Jew holding to the law 
right? Maybe uh, you'd have Jews that say, why don't you have time for Jesus? I just want the law. It doesn't matter. And we talked about sincerity as well in that too. None of those things matter. Law working, sincerity, deeds, none of it. Only Christ. We are not new creations because we followed the steps or said the right prayer. We are new creations because we're in Christ and believe in him by faith and are saved by grace alone. We are creations only because of the cross of Christ. That's it. And that is for anyone, by the way, anyone, Jew, Gentile alike, that would believe, that would believe. Look at verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God. You look at the all there, all includes all who walk by this rule. That's what he starts with, which is what? Well, it's what we've just said in verses 14 and 15. All who walk by the rule, which is the cross of Christ, the boast in Christ. All who walk by that rule and not their own rule. That rule of the cross has been well defined in this letter, and I don't think there's any better definition of that rule than in chapter 2, verse 16. We must revisit This very important verse before we leave this book. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. What is the rule of the cross of Christ? What is it? Chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. There it is clearly. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be justified. The cross of Christ, faith in Christ for justification. That's the rule. That is the gospel. There is no other one. There is no other way. And it's saving truth for all those that believe it. And hence, if you believe it, it stands to reason you will walk by it as a demonstration that you do believe it. A person is not justified by works. No one can be justified by works, circumcision or otherwise. No one will be. No, this Galatian letter, Westmount, has taught us that truth in in bright colors, and we need this final reminder that one is justified by faith alone in the cross of Christ alone. Here, this final reminder that all who walk in that newness of life, that Ephesians 4 newness of life, do so only because of the cross of Jesus, the work of Christ. It's the only work. And it's the only work, look at verse 16, that offers what? Peace and mercy. Those key gospel components. Peace with God. This is reconciliation with the Father, who we're estranged from in our original sin. Only in the true gospel do we have reconciliation back to the Father. Back to the Father. Only possible because of the cross of Christ, and the mercy of God. We have forgiveness in this gospel, only available through what? The cross of Christ. Through Christ taking on the punishment for our sin and atoning for us, church. Here, beloved, is where we see Paul with that gospel in full view and the boast of those Judaizers, those false teachers, Here, with that fully in view, as this letter comes to a close, we're going to see Paul take his last parting shot at the Judaizers. A last attempt to get their attention. This is what he's aiming to do. This is not malicious. This is a warning cry about the path they're on. Look at the end of verse 16. 
peace and mercy, not just for all, so that's Gentiles included, but look, but also upon who? The Israel of God. Israel, of course, the chosen people of God. In fact, you look at that name and that word Israel, it's a name synonymous with being of God, is it not? And of course, that was the reason that God renamed Jacob Israel. Do you remember him wrestling in Genesis 32? He gave him, God gave him the name Israel because Israel means what? Israel means he strives with God. That's what that word means. And Jacob very much striving, right, with that angel of the Lord, if you will. But that's a very fitting name for one of the patriarchs that would come to represent God's people, God's true people. It's denoting enduring relationship. What was true about Jacob? He would not let go. That's enduring relationship. And of course, as you think about everything flowing from Jacob onwards, the flow of Israel from the patriarchs is hardly a picture of enduring relationship from the Israelite standpoint, is it not? Israel, really, as the Old Testament depicts, in some ways Israel in name only, certainly not in truly following, truly striving with God. Yet the Israelites, right through to here, the first century in Galatia, claiming, even boasting, of how they were God's people. I mean, this was the boast. We looked at this not only in Galatians, but in the Gospel of Mark. This was the boast of the Jewish people of the time. They were God's chosen people in name. They were Israel. Yet to look at them right up to the reception of Messiah, listen to me, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't have any clue that they were really God's people. They were rejecting God himself, God in flesh. And that is why Paul says elsewhere, think of Romans 9, verse 6, listen to this, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are the children of Abraham. In other words, to strive with God to be a true Israelite is not a matter simply of ethnicity. For the Jew, it's not just a matter of, well, I was born into it, so I am it. No, I'd describe to you many still feel that way about the church. If I'm just born into that Christian home, that makes me a Christian and I'm from that pedigree. Well, that's not the way it works, Old Testament or New. And here we see that Romans verse tells us, and by the way, affirmed, you think about not just in the New Testament, listen to this in the Old Testament. We have these verses sometimes that get buried. Listen to this, Psalm 73. Psalm 73, the, the psalm writer Asaph highlighted this. Who is he writing to as he opens that psalm? Listen to this at the beginning of verse 1. And for clarity on who the true Israel is. Listen to what he says. Truly God is good to Israel. Okay, Israel. And here's the clarifier, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, there is a distinction on who true Israel would be. To be a true Israelite was not just to be a Jew. I mean, it was to be a Jew, first and foremost. But it was not just simply to be a Jew. But to be a Jew pure in heart, faithfully, believing, enduring, turning to Messiah. Turning to Messiah. Further, remember, this was Paul's point in chapter 3 and 4 of Galatians. He labored at length to give this point that he's summing up here. That those that are truly gods are not gods because of their ancestry. They're not like the royal family, right? Where you're just born into the royal family and, and that's who you are. No. What did he talk about with Abraham? Promise. Faith. Like Abraham, they're children of the promise. Children of faith. And not all Israel believed in that true promise, really. Not all Israel had that faith, really. 
Not all Israel embraced the promise and the Messiah who would come. Not all Israel walked by his rule and through his cross. No, not all Israel was truly Israel. No, there was only a remnant that was truly the Israel of God. Like Paul, like the apostles, Jews by birth, absolutely. Christians, followers by faith. Jews by birth, yes, but Israel by faith. That is the true Israel of God. And here, as Paul closes his letter, in essence, he says this to the Judaizers. And and let me ask you this. Would this get their attention? He basically says, you may be the Israel of Israel, right? You may be the Israel of Israel. We think of Paul saying, I was the Jew of Jews. You may be the Israel of Israel, but you are certainly not the Israel of God. You're not the Israel of God. No, the Israel of God, along with all those grafted in who walk by faith in Christ, the Gentiles, right? Those are God's truly chosen people. Their means for gospel ministry is the cross of Christ. That is their boast. Not circumcision, not their birth certificate, but the cross of Christ. This letter fittingly ends with one last facet of gospel ministry, and it's this. Gospel ministry has the right marks. Gospel ministry has the right marks. Look at verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul says, let this trouble come to an end. Why? Because he's made a better case. He's just a really good order. He's a good debater. Because Paul has the pedigree, remember that from chapter 1, speaking of Jew of Jews, is that why? Because he is the one, and he has the special calling card? No, none of those things. Paul rests his case of evidence on this. Look at it. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The image there is like a branding iron pressed into the skin. That's what's behind that word right? Marks of Jesus. It's like a branding iron pressed hard into the skin, leaving a permanent mark. Those marks, that's what he's talking about. And you would say, well, what's that? What are those marks? This is not a a cross or a fish tattoo. That's not what we're talking about here. These are the marks of ministry, the marks that come from serving Christ authentically. These are the marks He was told, the Apostle Paul, that he would have upon his conversion. Do you remember he was told about these marks? Remember Acts 9.16? What was he told upon conversion? That he would suffer for the name of Jesus. And then those marks are described in graphic detail in 2 Corinthians 11. Remember the imprisonments, the countless beatings to the point of death, the 39 lashes, the rod beating, the stoning. Those marks and the marks those Galatians would know all too well. Remember the Galatian church plant? Do you remember it in Acts 13 and 14? Do you remember the stoning? I mean, when you think about all the beatings and all the marks that Paul took in his flesh, when he was stoned at Lystra, remember, he was stoned to the point of death. He was stoned so badly that everyone thought he was dead and they left him for dead outside the city. Those marks for Jesus. And Paul ends this letter with a final validation. In other words, he says, you want to talk about truly following Jesus. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And beloved, as you consider one final time the ministry of the false ones today, 
the evidence testifies to the fact that they do not bear such marks. No, instead of scarred skin, they have soft skin. They are pampered. They're not persecuted at all. And that's because they profess a different gospel. They profess a false gospel. In fact, they get behind a cursed gospel. And you say, well, that's strong words, and you might remember that wording. Let's remind ourselves of chapter 1, verse 9. This is no light matter. Remember why Paul just gets right to it in this letter. Remember why he is so passionate as he picks up the pen. Chapter 1, verse 9. As we have said before, and this is not just to Galatia, this is to all of us. As I've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That is right, beloved. Remember the warning. Remember the warning. It's no light one. As we said at the beginning, there is just so much that is at stake here. And we cannot leave this Galatian letter without any doubt in our minds of how high the stakes are. Love it, it is not okay to just be off a little. There is no room to tolerate error. We don't entertain false teaching in any form because it's cursed. No, we don't flirt with it. We don't play with it. We don't fondle it. We don't entertain it. It's cursed. And yes, because it's cursed means it's a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of not wanting to lead others astray. We don't want to be led astray ourselves. Playing with something that is cursed. No, we flee from anything that's not in line with Scripture. There's nothing too small. There's no little errancy. Flee from it. True, authentic gospel ministry bears the right marks of Jesus. And remember those marks. Persecution. Following Christ the way that he lived life. Enduring that. Authenticity. The boast in Christ. That is what true gospel ministry is. And it bears those marks. Let the life of Paul be our example in salvation, suffering, and sanctification. Now, there's only one thing left to be said in this letter before we close it for this series. And it really is one word. Look at verse 18. Grace. It was the opening greeting. Do you remember the opening greeting in chapter 1, verse 3? Paul said, grace to you. And here it is the closing blessing. Look at verse 18 with me. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. A very familiar benediction in some form or another, closing all of Paul's letters. He says, to your spirit, brothers, and only to such redeemed, can Paul bless with this, to your spirit, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. This is it. Grace. The sum of all that Paul has been saying in this letter. It is the sum. Grace. The gospel is not one found in works. The gospel is not one born of man. The gospel is not about how we keep the law. No, the gospel is grace. The unconditional, free gift of grace from our Lord. Ultimately, that is the mark of both the true gospel and of right ministry. Paul ends here with grace as if to say this, As if to say this to close, my brothers, it begins and it ends with grace. There is nothing else to say. I write because of grace, you walk because of grace, and we are what we are, saved and free because of grace. Amen.
Father, indeed, we echo those closing words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, given freely to our spirits, Lord, as brothers now, we collectively say amen to that. Here at Westmount, some 2,000 years later, Lord, this letter no less true for us in this age. And God, we thank you for all that we've learned in this letter. We thank you for the reminders as we've closed this letter today. And Lord, help us do what we need reminders of doing, all the more to avoid false gospels, different gospels, to not quickly desert the true gospel, but to quickly desert the false gospel, Lord, to flee from it, to not entertain it. God, let us be weary of that, and let us walk in newness of life. As we are reminded at the end of the letter, let us not uh, pander to the flesh, but let's walk in step with the Spirit and bear fruit in the Spirit. Oh, God, have mercy on us and help us to do so. Lord, thank you for this wonderful study, this rich study. May we go out now as we close it for today, walking in the Spirit, walking in newness of life, and walking in this grace. Amen.